Welcome back to the Fordham IPLJ podcast. I'm staff correspondent Christina Sauerborn. Uh, with me today is Kyle Peterson. He's a partner at Patterson Tenty. He's based in their uh, Minneapolis office. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Kyle. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Christina. Good to be here. <laughs> so um, I, just to kind of give a brief introduction, um, so Kyle primarily represents clients with complex business issues involving patents and trademarks, uh, and he has broad experience in IP licensing, counseling, and infringement uh, analysis. So um, just to get us started, I know that kind of is a really 30,000 foot view, but um, if you want to just give us a little bit of a background on your practice beyond <laughs> what I just kind of went into. Sure, yeah. I mean, I've been practicing intellectual property law for about 15 years. My background is actually in engineering, so I do a fair amount of patent work as well. Uh, but but I, I do um, represent a lot of clients uh, in terms of trademark, um, domain name issues, internet law, uh, trade secrets, trade dress protection, um, you know, clients in, in a wide range of industries, actually, a lot of consumer brands, um, also electronics, beverages, even uh, agricultural type companies. Um, so it's a lot of fun, uh, you know, mostly probably you know, your larger, more established companies, but it's also fun to, to help, um, you know, small kind of emerging companies protect their, their brands as well. That's really great. So you, so as far as you mentioned the domain names, so um, is, I guess the, the counseling you're giving sort of with regard to what might be the part of the process where they're selecting a domain or sort of where do you come in um, typically when, when clients are asking you about domains? You know, it, it seems like it, it's a variety of stages of the process. I mean, if they are trying to clear a new brand, you know, maybe they want to acquire, uh, you know, a, a domain that's going to, you know, help in their in their marketing of that brand. Um, sometimes it's a situation where maybe a competitor is going to adopt a similar domain name and maybe try to take advantage of opportunities where um, consumers are going to accidentally, you know, type in that name or you know different spellings of words. Um, so then we've got to, you know, try to you know, take action to, to kind of enforce trademarks uh, when they, you know, they're causing confusion through internet and domain name use. So, so yeah, I handle kind of both both sides of it. And to be honest with you, um, you know, some of these clients don't know it's a problem until the problem pops up. So, right. um, as much as I'd like to say that clients will you know, clear these marks ahead of time and, and maybe make sure the domain name, the digital common law is clear. Um, sometimes, frankly, it isn't. So um, that's a big part of, of kind of, you know, my job too, is to kind of advise them based on what the, the reality of, of the online marketplace looks like, kind of what their, what their uh, potential solutions would be. That's great. No, and I think that that's, I mean, that's really, I think, what builds a great relationship too, is when you're able to get an idea and a strategy in their mind so that later on you know when they're coming to you they've they've thought about what you've said and and hopefully they're not getting you involved when it's sort of like too late or they've made decisions that you know without without speaking to you i think it builds a lot of trust right i like to tell you know some of the smaller clients especially that you know might get a cease desist letter or something like that and they maybe didn't do their due diligence in in terms of, of branding up front that that is common and don't feel, you know, like you necessarily, you know, should have known. I mean, unless you, you know, went to, to school and, and studied 
commonly to the the smaller emerging companies, but even I've seen it happen to the the big guys too. And and usually that's more embarrassing because of course you know it's all over the press and and you know sometimes the shareholders aren't too happy about those kinds of things. So um, so yeah, it's it's important, but um, you know something that that commonly I think is is overlooked. I mean marketing kind of takes charge and wants to roll out a name and maybe maybe they haven't followed up or maybe the legal department sometimes catching up in those situations. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, exactly. So this is actually, I think, a great segue um, to uh, what I think was really the topic we we're planning on discussing today. So, um, so I think uh, about a month ago, I had uh, written a blog post um, and it was analyzing uh, the recent uh, trademark disputes um, that the the game company Cards Against Humanity has been involved in. Um, and I actually think we did another episode sort of talking about this because it's, it's pretty uh, interesting and there's sort of a lot of layers here. Um, but uh, they're, they're involved in a dispute um, with this company that actually already sort of sued them, SCS Direct. Um, so I was just wondering, sort of, what are your impressions on um, just your initial reactions to the dispute? Yeah, this is kind of an interesting case. So you know, Cards Against Humanity, you know, they've they're clearly the senior user. They've built up some some type of branding and recognition, and and what they really seem to hold on to is, is of course, their name. You know, in fact, looking at their uh, their website, it says, you know, don't touch our name or we will crush you. Literally, I think that's it says that. like we will smash you. Yeah, we'll smash. Yeah, <laughs> so that's that's right. It's we will smash you. That's so, right. um, so clearly, they're they're sensitive to to those types of of um, you know third parties out there. But at the same time, you know, they present their product under this Creative Commons license. So, um, something that's commonly done is you know people and companies will sell these expansion sets that kind of build off of the original. And um, it seems like there's been a pattern in history of, go of that going on. And uh, uh, SCS Direct, you wanted to launch one of these sets, um, you know, Humanity Hates Trump is the name of it. So, um, you know, clearly I think there's, you know, some some inspiration from the original from, from Cards Against Humanity here. And... Um, so it looked like there was a cease and desist letter sent from Cards Against Humanity over to SCS Direct um, over their Humanity Hates Trump um, product, and well, I think it, it was even like beyond Trump. that for that. I, I so what I had read was that um, uh, SCS Direct, so they were making the Humanity Hates Trump uh, product, and they had a Kickstarter, I think, um, to sort of raise money. To, to fund the product um, and Cards Against Humanity had reached out to Kickstarter to sort of cut them off at the pass and Kickstarter um, ended their their funding campaign. So now they can't raise money, I guess, to release the product, which I, I mean, they released it anyway. So I, I believe, I guess they're fine, but I think that was sort of like the catalyst was um, the, the end right. of the Kickstarter, yeah. Um, but uh, I wanted to get your thoughts, though. Like, what do you do? You advise any companies with Creative Commons licensing? Do you, what, do you have any experience working with anybody who's sort of pursued that? Because I'm seeing it used more and more. I think it's very interesting. 
yeah, I mean, it's used in the copyright context more and more, and I think, you know, it, it makes sense in certain areas, you know, when, you know, to use it. You know, I think here in the in the Cards Against Humanity context, I think it's a little bit of a handicap for them because there's only so much they can do, you know, to, when, when you're, you know, providing some of the stuff for for use and they can modify sets, et cetera. You know, they're, they're kind of limited, and it seems like in the SCS case, I think from the history I read, it, it sounds like SCS made some concessions, but the one thing they held on to was this black and white card looks to trade dress, you know, or Cards Against Humanity's alleged trade dress, and that's where SCS said, no, we're not changing our black and white look, that's what we want, and um, and I think that's what led to Cards Against Humanity filing the, the complaint with Kickstarter, and frankly, that's what triggered uh, SES, you know, to file suit because, you know, they alleged there's some unfair competition claims in addition to, you know, to, to the other claims. And there's actual harm because they're affecting, you know, the, the launch of their business. So so I think that's where, you know, SES was on the defensive and they decided just to go on offense once that Kickstarter action took place. But um, so, so, yeah, getting, getting back, you know, I, I feel like because of that, that Creative Commons license, at least in the complaint that SES filed, you know, there's a litany of third parties using this black and white trade dress, and I think it's really poking holes in in Cards Against Humanity's claims that they're the exclusive user of this, you know, distinctive what their their word um, trade dress, and it's it's unregistered, so ultimately it's you know Cards Against Humanity's burden of proof to prove that consumers will recognize and associate that look of the card with with their product, and frankly, I think SCS and their attorneys just, that was a bet they were willing to, to take. I, I think that they probably thought that Cards Against Humanity wouldn't, you know, be able to, to actually prove or substantiate their common law trade dress claims. So, um, so that's, that's, I think, really at the heart of this, and um, just from my experience, I think, you know, when you, A, trademark claims are relatively hard to, to prove. Or, and and B, you know, when you do prove trade dress protection, or, you know, it's it's usually over you know kind of your obscure colors, uh, black and white. I think would be probably the, the least obscure and probably therefore the hardest yeah. to protect from a trade dress standpoint. That was sort of I mean, just based on my, you know, deep dive into the internet, looking at all of the there. I mean, there's so so many. Um, you know, for-profit sort of remixes, you know, that are clearly utilized. They're, they're clearly, I wouldn't even maybe say capitalizing, but they're they're springing off of the success of Cards Against Humanity and making these either, you know, expansion packs or these similar games. But, you know, I think for the consumer, it's like, if you're playing Cards Against Humanity and you know, at a certain point, you want to get more cards because it makes it make you know mixes it up. It makes the game more interesting. So I guess sort of as a consumer, you almost kind of want everything to look similar because you know for practical you know uses, you're going to probably incorporate everything into being sort of the same game ultimately. So I guess there's sort of this interesting I think like balance between you know. Cards Against Humanity wanting to say, like, look, we have our product that's distinctive and we want to protect, you know, our profitability um, down the line and our brand. 
um, with also just streamlining, you know, allowing these other companies to make these remixes because it makes the overall comp, you know, concept of the game um, more popular uh, and more interesting and more marketable. Do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, it's it's an inch. To be honest, I see that tension quite often. I mean, the marketing people really want the world to to use this and just you know the popularity increases and you know everybody wins, right? Um, you see that a lot in trademarks. I mean, it's it's like okay, ask for my product by by name. You know, hand me a Kleenex. That's all great until people you know start handing puffs tissues when people ask for a Kleenex and people are fine with that. You know, you can kind of lose your distinctiveness. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's kind of the tension that's going on here. You've got Cards Against Humanity's been out for a while. They're obviously really popular, and now there's, you know, a bunch of expansion sets that are keeping the look and feel. And, and from a trademark standpoint, you know, if, if people just, you know, they're okay with that, and maybe, maybe the, the black and white trade dress doesn't necessarily represent you know, a source of the product is representing a category of game now. And then all of a sudden, you know, the rights can evaporate because it's no longer a source identifier. It's more representing a, a product category, like Kleenex is representing a tissue. Right. Not, not that, that's, that that's gone that far in the Kleenex case, but I think there's, there's there, you know, they're so popular there might be in danger of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that that's, and that, that's, I think, certainly the argument that SCS was trying to make was that, you know, it's, like they said, it's black and white. Like, how you know? How can you say that they just can't use those colors when it's you know a category? And not only that, but then there are other you know there there are certainly other expansions and other games that are similar that have used those colors. It's like where do you sort of draw the line? You know, as far as you know what what goes too far? And I think that that you know, as far as I could tell, sort of where I wonder whether Cards Against Humanity could be a little bit, um, you know, more stringent in enforcing their, their their brand, because I think at some point, you know, like when does it become like, oh, there's just, there's so many of them, it's like, how can you even tell anymore? Right, yeah, I think that's that's probably where, where they're at. I mean, you know, um, Humanity hates Trump. I mean, they, they basically use the word humanity. I think right. that's that's kind of showing that they were clearly inspired by the original here. But you know, they made a big deal in in the the pleadings of, about using separate you know packaging. These kind of the red, white, and blue almost pre presidential theme to their their package versus kind of the the black and white look. Um, I believe in the history that I, I kind of dug deep, and it looked like Cards Against Humanity sent a letter requesting they change their font, and I believe they actually agreed to, even though, again, the font here isn't really a, a very stylized font. I think it's uh, one of your, your more standard ones. So, um, you know, even that, I think, is, is weak in terms of a distinctiveness standpoint. So, um, you know, it's clearly Humanity Hates Trump was inspired by the original, and, um, you know, I, I feel like they're trying to maybe... <laughs> maybe thread the needle a little bit in terms of, you know, launch a, a product that's compatible with the, the original Cards Against Humanity set. But um, ultimately, you know, I, I feel like Cards Against Humanity is just limited in terms of what they're able to, to enforce just, just because of, you know, there's not a lot of distinctiveness, like you say, to the black and white 
color scheme and even the I, I forget what font they use, but it's it's basically here. It's like Helvetica. A, a pretty standard font. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, like the New York City subway uses that. Like I, I think <laughs> at some point yeah. it's it's like where do you? It's just it's and it's Helvetica. I think it actually. I, I I'd be interested um, at what other um, uses there are. I feel like it's very ubiquitous now. Like a lot of um, brands I see nowadays using it more and more because it's got this sort of cool, trendy, almost feel to it. I think. Yeah, I believe the government actually, some entity did a, a study to to on fonts, and their goal was to find like the most readable, legible font, you know, just for the public to use. And I think that was definitely maybe certainly in the top three if not the top one really and i think that's why you see it on the subway and that's why a lot of the the government pamphlets are coming out using that font now where it used to be kind of like a times font mm. and um, and that again is, is hurting the cards against humanity distinct in this case because you know if you're going to you know build up trade dress rights it's got to be something distinctive unusual and, and maybe not your government go-to font yeah yeah, definitely. I mean, that that certainly, I think, hurts their case, for real. Um, uh, so sort of shifting gears a little bit, um, and we talked offline about this um, for a moment, and I, I thought, I, I've always thought it was sort of interesting um, that SCS uh, would try to sue um, Cards Against Humanity considering uh, Cards' um, size and their resources. And in my article, uh, I talked about sort of the potential, um, you know, PR problems that can happen in situations like this, where you have sort of the little guy um, and they're struggling to compete against this larger company. Um, so I guess my question is sort of when you advise your clients, um, how does this kind of come into play? Um, and I, I guess I'd, I would want to, I'd be curious to know from both perspectives, because I think that the considerations are definitely a little different when you have you're advising a bigger company versus uh, a lesser known, maybe smaller company. Yeah, I've definitely been on both sides of this, and and to be honest, when you're on the the larger, you know, company side, you know, I think you want to have just a frank conversation about that. Sometimes get, you know, the the public relations people involved. Maybe even you know launch a a press release kind of announcing what's going on. And I think really the messaging in the, those situations has to be that, you know, trademarks is, is ultimately kind of a subset of consumer protection. Uh, brand holders are protecting these brands and, and marks and trade dress really on behalf of the public. And, and it's to prevent public confusion, really to make sure that customers get what they're expecting. I mean, if you're going to buy a Rolex, making sure it comes from Switzerland, making sure it uses precious metals, et cetera, et cetera, not just a, you know, a watch that's painted gold, you know what right. I mean? Um, so I, I think that's kind of the theory behind this, and I think that's the, the story that, that really needs to be told when you're the, the big company, pers- you know, uh, to use uh, what Cards Against Humanity's words, we will smash you when you're smashing the small kind of upstart on Kickstarter. You know, you have to say, look, we're doing this because we want to and preserve the integrity of the game. We want to prevent people from being confused. You know, maybe maybe they're going to have commission studies showing that, you know, uh, an appreciable number of, of people are actually thinking this, this new Trump game because they use humanity, humanity against Trump and uses the same look and the same, you know, fonts as, as 
the original. Maybe it is either affiliated, you know, sponsored by or endorsed by the original. That that can be a basis for consumer confusion as, and infringement as well. So, um, so that's that's usually kind of what I, I I try to counsel when I'm you know advising the larger companies on these issues. I mean, just not taking an act, action can can you know be considered waiving your rights, and, and maybe you can you know not not be allowed to enforce those rights in the future if, if you know you go a number of years especially without without enforcing your trademarks um, so it's, it's something that you know as a trademark owner you have the responsibility to enforce and police these trademarks you know not only to your benefit but to the benefit of the consumers as well so you know once you find this kind of thing you really you know you either have to take action or else you know you're creating a precedent where you're you're almost permitting people to, to do this in the future and you know, latches and estoppel can prevent you enforcing from enforcing your rights against those folks as well. So, right. So that's certainly the the consideration from the larger uh, clients. That's yeah. Um, I mean, it, I think that's that's exactly right, and it's you know that that to me is the other thing that's interesting is the fact that you know they've been very involved. I think in um, making sure that all the other sort of commercial uses that are playing off of their their product that are you know quote unquote they say remixing their product they've been uh very involved i think in the release a lot of, of a lot of these products um and i mean i i have to think that they probably have their own um people advising them and making recommendations as far as maybe what is okay to let go and what is important to continue um you know being steadfast on and i think for them it sounds like based on the scs case that uh the black and white is is sort of like a you know we're just not going to give that up like that's that's our thing um but right. uh i just wonder whether like I, I just based on what I see out there now on 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 store shelves and on Amazon, I just wonder whether that's enough. Right, and and you know similarly when you advise the smaller you know upstart companies, I mean you you want to remind them that you know in America um, everybody is is presumed equal under the law and the laws apply equally to to the the small mom and pop or upstart company as they do to your your Fortune five hundred companies. And, um, you know, the, the question becomes, do you have the resources to kind of see this through, you know, because obviously just, uh, you know, any kind of legal action sometimes is, can be very, very expensive. Um, but in the SCS case here, when they, they presumably got this cease and desist letter from Cards Against Humanity, I think that, that they thought they had a good case with regard to the lack of distinctiveness of this black and white unregistered alleged trade dress. And I think they took a rather aggressive approach by, you know, by at least pocket filing this uh, this complaint, you know, alleging unfair competition and infringement, and and you know that kind of action is going to get the attention of the big guy, saying, look, you know, these even though they're small, they're not necessarily going to go away. They're going to stand their ground. And, exactly. And, uh, you know, I, in a way, you got to you got to applaud them for that. I, I think that, you know, it's. Sometimes it, you know it, it might be tempting when you get a, a letter, you know, a nasty letter from a, a large company or their lawyers to to say, look, you know, we're too small, we we can't do anything against these guys. Well, you know, the laws apply the same. If you if you believe 
you know, their their trade dress isn't isn't distinctiveness or distinctive, and you know, other parties are using it, then then obviously, you know, maybe, maybe you should attempt to to uh, stand your ground on those issues. And I think that's what SCS did here. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so, Kyle, I think we're gonna wrap up shortly. Um, but just before we do, um, I wanted to just ask you one more question. If you have um, just, I guess, any sort of general, uh, maybe words of wisdom or uh, sort of advice if um, you were speaking to uh, maybe a new uh, entrant to the market or somebody who is kind of looking to come up with a similar sort of remixed uh, product like this, if you have any um, advice, I guess, to give? You know, it's it's always good to have, you know, some, some type of legal review. You know, I, I believe that um, when you start out, you want to, you know, think about a clearing your trademarks, maybe developing some kind of distinctive, you know, look to your product. Um, you know, I would say, you know, come up with a, you know, even a, a unique design. If I mean, if you want to play off the original, maybe, you know, create a little portion that that looks a little bit distinctive, so you can start building up consumer recognition, building up branding. Uh, you know, ultimately, if you do this out of the box, the longer you, you know, um, you're out there, the more consumers are going to recognize that particular color or design with your product. I mean, look at like Owens Corning with the pink insulation. I mean, that's, right. you can walk into a new building, you see pink, and you, without even seeing the Owens Corning labels and trademarks, you know that that's the product that is, is there. Well, they used pink because pink doesn't come off the, you know, the fiberglass insulation doesn't come off the line pink. They have to dye it and spend some money getting it that way, but it's building up strong rights uh, to, to that. Um, you know, so so similar. It, you know, no matter what industry you're in, if you're in the, the flower industry or the card industry, like these guys are, you know, develop some kind of strategy to build up some kind of distinctiveness. And and usually, as these things go, especially common law rights, they they tend to become more strong or stronger over time. Typically, as as consumers are, are recognizing and associating that particular design element or product feature or color with your your company. So. Um, you know, I, I, my best advice is if you're launching a new product or a new company, kind of think along those lines because because um, that can really pay off down the road. That's great. That's great advice. I completely agree. I think you know being distinctive is probably more important now than ever. Just you know, with the ease of access of information, I think you know it's it's really remarkable what's out there, and it's so so important to establish uh, your brand really early. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the marketplace is more crowded than ever, and it's I don't see any any sign of that changing in the future. So, um, so those factors have to be considered. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much, Kyle. It was a pleasure speaking with you, um, and we're so so glad to have you. Thank you so much for your time. Um, it was it was awesome chatting. Yeah. Likewise, uh, Christina. Best of luck to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs>